Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can join us for new episodes every Thursday, and we're always glad to hear from you, so feel free to leave us a rating and a review. This week, we're finding out how people in the past entertain themselves during the cold and dark midwinter and the festive mischief they got up to at this time of year. Joining us now to explain the history of midwinter misbehaviour and the curious tradition of the Lord of Misrule is senior properties historian Dr Michael Carter. It's great to be back and Christmas party season is in full swing, isn't it? Fun and let's be honest, a little bit of misbehaviour is probably happening around the country as I speak will discover that some of the antics that happen around Christmas tide in the depths of winter have some very deep historical roots indeed. Yes, yeah, so why do you think there is this rich history of festive frivolity and raucous behaviour at this particular time of year? Well, let's start by stating the obvious. It's dark and it's, well, it often can be very cold and we need something to cheer us up. So, hey, party and push the boundaries a bit. But it's also a time of transition. It's the apex of darkness. We're getting the first tentative return of light after the 21st of December. And the times are out of joint at this time of year. And there was an awareness of this. And at similar times of transition between the seasons, light and dark, we do get times when the norms are being subverted and that misbehaviour, pushing the boundaries of accepted behaviour, what are normal communal roles, ways of behaving, are pushed very, very slightly. When and where did this midwinter merrymaking begin? Is there a particular origin that we can trace it to? It goes back a very long time indeed. Builders of Stonehenge, about 3,500 years ago or so, probably lived in a settlement about two miles away from this great monument in Wiltshire at Durrington Walls. And the bones of approximately a 1,000 slaughtered animals have been excavated there. But they're mostly pigs and they show evidence of roasting. Roasting meat was really quite difficult. And close analysis of the bone shows that these pigs were about nine months old. And that might indicate that they were slaughtered, you know, born in the spring, slaughtered at a feast to accompany the festivals accompanying the midwinter sunrise. It's plausible. That's obviously prehistory. So we're thinking that perhaps there was at least feasting going on and that kind of merrymaking during the winter solstice celebrations at Stonehenge thousands of years ago. As time moves on and different civilizations start to emerge, do we have other examples of midwinter merrymaking? 
We certainly do. We're getting into the period with the Romans where we have documented history. So we have written sources so we can speak with a little bit more authority about what was happening. And the Romans had a number of late December, early January feasts. So there is the Saturnalia, and that starts on the 17th of December with celebrations enduring for between two and seven days. They have the Feast of the Unconquered Sun on the 25th of December. Uh, They start celebrating that in the um, third century after Christ. And then there's a very ancient Roman feast on the 1st of January, Calendai. That's the Roman New Year. Now, both the Saturnalia and the Roman New Year were accompanied by misrule. And that involved role reversal inversion of the norms. For instance, masters would wait upon their slaves. Now, this aspect of the Saturnalia, this inversion, this exalted role for slaves, was of great significance to the Roman invasion of Britain under the Emperor Claudius in AD 43. The Roman historian Cassius Dio, writing towards the end of the second century, tells us that the legions mustered on the shores of Gaul were none too happy about the thought of sailing across the channel to Britain beyond the bounds of the known world, as he puts it. So the emperor sends his trusted advisor, Narcissus. Now, he's a freed slave, a freedman, and one of the, a number of freedmen who um, uh, advises to the emperor. He steps onto the rostrum to address the assembled uh, Roman soldiers, and a cry goes up, Io Saturnalia! It's the Saturnalia, a comment on Narcissus's origins, the role reversal that happens, and that here they have a freed slave speaking to freeborn Roman soldiers. Well, the nascent rebellion just dissolves into laughter, and the Roman soldiers set sail for the shores of Britannia and set about conquering a new province. It's an amusing historical anecdote, but it speaks to the purpose of misrule, inversion and role reversal at the Saturnalia. It's to let off steam, and by apparently subverting the accepted, the natural order of the things accepted at that time, it actually serves to reinforce them. I think a lot of comedians would probably say that uh, subversion is one of the key tactics in comedy, isn't it, really, to, to get a laugh? Interesting. OK. And Saturnalia, of course, or Saturnalia, depending on how you pronounce it, um, that's relating to the god Saturn. Moving on to when Roman authority was removed from Britain in the early 400s and Christianity is gradually bedding in. Did midwinter misbehaviour continue in these centuries as England gradually converted? Well, I'm going to jump forward, actually, to around the late 11th, 12th century, when we have evidence of a kind of Christian feast or festival that happens around Christmas time, and that's the so-called Feast of Fools or the Feast of Asses or even the Feast of Subdeacons. As the last name gives you an indication, it's an exercise in Christian humility. It was a day upon which the higher clergy handed over to the lower clergy. Now, subdeacons are the lowest in the major ordained orders. So these lower orders took over uh, responsibility for the performance of religious ceremonies. 
It was originally held on the New Year, but it gradually moves forward in the sequence of Christmas celebrations to the feast days that fall immediately after Christmas Day. And quite a repertoire of burlesque performances, celebrations and rites develop around it. Now, we have some gleanings of what these consisted of from the complaints of high-manded reformist prelates in the 13th and 14th century. There are complaints about silly pranks and gesticulations at Wells Cathedral in Somerset, that's southwest England in around that time. And at Exeter, we hear of masks, mimes, and even mudslinging, which causes the assembled faithful to dissolve into disorderly laughter and illicit mirth. At Canterbury Cathedral, some of the clergy took to wearing the clothes of lay people and they interrupted services with rude songs and games. Now, on the whole, it seems to have been grudgingly tolerated, even enjoyed. And we know from inventories of possessions of some greater churches, that's monasteries, cathedrals, and what are called collegiate churches, that they even had some special costumes uh, in which to celebrate the Feast of Fools. But it fades away, and we hear very little of it after the 15th century. But that doesn't mean that inversion doesn't retain a very important place in Christmastide celebrations in the church. That's really interesting that actually the clergy were the ones getting involved in this subverting of you know standards and of behavior indeed i mean isn't it quite extraordinary that we have people you know really quite raucous behavior taking place in the choir stalls uh, you know where the clergy is assembling to sing the services at uh, at christmas tide um you know they're some of the holiest days of the year and they're having a right old time enjoying themselves in the process. In actual fact, I was reading about graduation ceremonies at some provincial universities in the like late 19th and early 20th century. And I think it was at Sheffield University. The graduation ceremony would dissolve into behaviour very, very reminiscent of what was described at taking place at Salisbury Wells and other cathedrals in the 13th and 14th centuries. It just... this you know, which starts off as being a very decorous occasion and just descends into mirth and laughter and people dressed up but misbehaving themselves. And I think that speaks to something that's deep within us at these solemn occasions and the need to let off a little bit of steam every so often. Yes, because of course, you know, Christmas, I suppose, in the Christian calendar is the, if I'm right in saying, the second most important date after Easter, isn't it? So... Yeah, I mean, it's a very, very important festival. And there's lots of debates about what's more important, Christmas or Easter. You could argue that you know, it's, it's Christ's triumph over death at Easter. He dies on the cross, rises from the dead on the third day, and through that gives humankind the chance of, of redemption, of living an eternal life. But in Northern Europe, where it is dark and cold, and Easter can be a miserable time of year in Northern Europe, depending on when it falls and what the early spring weather is like. But in the cold and dark of Northern Europe, well, Christmas is a very, very big deal indeed. You know, the celebrations that accompany it, arguably the festivities that accompany Christmas are on a much, much greater scale than anything that accompanies Easter. 
Just going back to this Feast of Fools where the clergy are misbehaving and turning things on their head, did the senior clergymen have any issue with this? Did they frown upon these activities? I mean, we know, as I said, that we know of some high-minded reformist bishops in the 13th and 14th century who'd start to take umbrage about it. But the complaints are few and far between, and that suggests that it's tolerated. They might not like it, but it's one of those things of, yeah, okay, let them have their fun. It's only a couple of, perhaps just one day a year. Let them get on with it, and things return to normal the day after, and they've had their bit of fun, and the accepted hierarchies and the decorum will all return. Now, we also see this with another Christmas tradition, and that is the tradition of boy bishops, boy abbots, and even girl abbesses. I see. So when did these children get in on the act, so to speak? Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really fascinating subject. Gosh, there's enough evidence on this for it to have a podcast on its own, to be honest. Now, its origins probably go back into what's now Germany in the 10th century. And it's a bit like the Feast of Fools. Junior clergy were allowed their own processions on the days after Christmas. And that, for choir boys and choristers, that fell, appropriately enough, on the Feast of the Holy Innocents. That's the 28th of December. It's the holy day commemorating the baby boys slaughtered in Bethlehem on the orders of King Herod in his effort to kill the infant Jesus. Now, in medieval England, the feast was called Childermas, and that's an indication of its special association with children. It rapidly spreads across um, Europe, uh, including from France to England. Now, by the 12th century, it also becomes linked with the cult or the veneration of St. Nicholas. Now, he's a 4th century bishop in what's now Turkey. And he becomes especially associated with children because of some of the miracles he performs. Now, his feast day is not that far away from Christmas. It's on the 6th of December. Now, it becomes the practice on the Feast of uh, the Holy Innocents, Childer Mass, the 28th of December, for a choir boy to impersonate a bishop or an abbot, to lead processions and even preside over religious services. Now, in some instances, these boy bishops were elected by their peers, by other choir boys. And at Salisbury Cathedral, for instance, in the 13th century, there were even special cathedral statutes saying how this should happen and an attempt by the uh, senior clergy at the cathedral to interfere in the election process is bitterly resisted. And the chapter, the ruling chapter of the cathedral, that's the ruling clerics, rule in favour of the choir boys. And they also have, uh, with at Salisbury and at some other greater churches, held within the sacristy special diminutive vestments and mitres, that's the hat worn by a bishop, and croziers, their shepherd-like staff uh, with a crook at the top, showing the pastoral responsibility of bishops. Well, there's small little versions of these to be used on the Feast of the Boy Bishops. Now, as I said, it's normally on the 28th, but for reasons which are too complicated to go into here, great feast days of the Christian church start on the afternoon before at the service of Vespers. 
So at Vespers on the 27th of December, the boy bishops would assume their office and it would involve the bishop himself or an abbot in a monastery coming out of their stall and the boy bishop, boy abbot, taking their place. And this would happen to the words of a very important prayer called the Magnificat. So they very much take over the role of prelates, be it an abbot or a a bishop or even an abbess. We'll talk about that presently. They distribute charity, which is a very important role of the church, especially at Christmas. And they even sometimes go on what called visitations. So that is, they tour other churches within the diocese where they're given little feasts and, and, and they, you know, just exercise the episcopal or abbatial office, which they're temporarily occupying. You mentioned Salisbury Cathedral there in southwest England. Which English heritage monastic sites would have had boy bishops particularly? The great monastery of um, Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, East Anglia, seems to have been especially associated with them. And boy bishop there seems to have distributed pewter tokens on one side of which there is a mitre and around which uh, the legend surrounding the, they look like little coins and around the edge of which there's a prayer to St Nicholas on the back that looks like a typical penny from the medieval period. And they seem to have been distributed in charity whilst they're you know, making a procession around the monastery, uh, dispensing doles at the gates of the monastery. And it seems possible that they were exchanged for little treats at the monastic almonry, which is the place where charity was distributed to the poor. There's a brilliant drawing of a boy bishop wearing his little cassock and a mitre in a 15th century manuscript from Warley Abbey in Lancashire, the gatehouse, fantastic 14th century gatehouse, is in the care of English heritage. And Fountains Abbey, although it's a National Trust property, English Heritage looks after the ruins and our members can get in there for free. That's in North Yorkshire. And it's one of the monasteries which we know that the boy Archbishop of York, or as he was called in Yorkshire dialect, the Bairn Bishop, that he visited, he conducted an archi- a boy archiepiscopal visitation there during Christmas tide, and was treated with a lavish feast. Now, that's just a selection, and I am absolutely certain that every single one of the monasteries in now in the care of English heritage, where there were boy choristers, and that probably would have been the majority of them, would have had a tradition of boy bishops. It was ubiquitous across the medieval church, and we even hear of the practice at some of the bigger parish churches as well. How many days exactly would this have lasted for? Really good question. Now, they were often elected on the 6th of December. That's the Feast of St. Nicholas. And a feast would have accompanied the election. We know about this from Magdalen College, University of Oxford, the boy choristers there who sang in the college, uh, college choir. And then the kind of then assumed office on the afternoon of the 27th, as I said, they're, they're in their full pomp and panoply of office on the 28th. Some places their Episcopal office, their pseudo-Episcopal office, endures to some respect. The higher clergy take over again on the 29th. That's the Feast of St. Thomas the Martyr, St. Thomas Becket. But at some places, they seem to have exercised some aspect of their role right the way through until what's called the Octave of the Epiphany. That's the 13th of January. 
So there's some kind of enduring role. There's still some kind of like, you know, when they go on their visitations or distribution charity, that might endure much longer than the day of full office, which is Childermas, the 28th of December. I see. Were there similar celebrations involving girls at nunneries? Quite probably, yes. I can only think of one documented occurrence, and that was at Carrow, a Benedictine nunnery on the outskirts of Norwich, where we hear of girl abbesses. But there were surely others. There were really other interesting aspect of boy bishops is uh, around Christmas tide celebrations. Is that we um, know that some of the boy choristers would basically drag up, dress as figures described in biblical stories around the nativity, uh, put on makeup and female clothing. And again, that is another aspect of role reversal and inversion that does take place at Christmas tide and other periods of the year when you get this, the world turned upside down, things being out of joint, is people donning garments usually worn by the opposite sex. And of course, you see that in pantomimes, don't you? At yeah, Christmas time. exactly. That's another it's really interesting. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it might come from something else, but it's certainly echoing much, much older traditions. Peter Pan is always is often played by a lady, and um, the Ugly Sisters in Cinderella often played by a couple of gents, which is always fun. But um, moving back to the monastic side of things, how did the dissolution of the monasteries in the 1530s to 40s affect this tradition of midwinter misbehaviour and role reversal? Because obviously when, they, when they're taken away, I suppose the tradition perhaps dies away too. Well, it certainly does in the church. We'll talk about what happens in secular households presently. But the tradition of boy bishops very much perishes at the Reformation, at least here in England. Uh, Henry VIII could be a bit po-faced at times, and he forbids them in uh, 1541. I think they might briefly come back during Mary I's counter-reformation, but they've gone again. They decisively, the tradition is extinguished in England by the Reformation then of Elizabeth when she comes to the throne in 1558. But the tradition of boy bishops does endure in Catholic countries of Europe for much, much longer. I see. And beyond the monasteries, were there similar examples of midwinter misbehaviour? Oh, there most certainly were. And uh, one of the traditions was of the Bean Kings. Now, that's got very old roots indeed. It's a kind of continuation almost of the Roman Saturnalia, either consciously or unconsciously, I think. Basically, I mean, there's a clue in the name. And this is something which people might remember, an echo of this, that a bean would be baked into a cake. And the person finding this bean at a Christmas celebration, now it would be someone, I have to say, who is on a table which is reserved for people of higher status, you know, sort of thing. It wouldn't be the Bean King wouldn't have been someone of very lowly origins. Probably would have been a minor member of a royal household. First of all, we find this in royal household. It does go down the social scale. And we find being kings at uh, the Christmas courts of Edward II and Edward III. And they take on the kind of role of a kind of a master of revels. They're in charge of, of fun. They kind of also go a little bit down the um, social scale. We find being kings at uh, or midwinter sovereigns at Oxford and Cambridge colleges. Uh, even municipal corporations have them 
for their Christmas celebrations. And they have their own regalia and a kind of court of officials to oversee all the merriment. They even have a kind of mock gallows at which to punish people who don't quite play the game. Kind of, you know, there's a bit of ritual humiliation goes on with misrule and you're meant to take it in good sport. And if you don't, well, you, you get even more humiliation. But they give way gradually to what's called a lord of misrule, and he's often accompanied by an abbot of unreason. So, you know, lords are meant to see the orderly administration of the realm and and the bit of the secular world given to them, and abbots and bishops are meant to oversee the good order of the church. So once again, both these roles are subverted and and, and inverted. And we get these lords of misrule quite widely documented in elite households from the 15th in the 15th century all the way from the king down to wealthy gentry manor houses regarding the bean king who's the precursor to the lord of misrule how would this bean have um, been placed in the cake um, would it have been cooked first um- oh yeah it's, it's cooked in the baked cake and as i said you we get echoes of this sorry thanks for returning to that and then do you eat it? Well, you would find, you know, you break up the cake to eat it, I think. You know, you want to find the bean. Well, it'd be kind of unfortunate, wouldn't you, if you've swallowed the bean and then we didn't have a keeping king for the year. So, you know, that's a really good question. You know, perhaps that was a form of inversion. Oh, no bean king this year because it's been eaten. But I can remember as a little boy, there was still a tradition of baking a sixpence into a Christmas cake or a Christmas pudding silver sixpence and our sixpences had gone out of circulation by the time of this happening in you know my childhood and it had to be silver as well to stop contamination of the food but that's an echo of both of this tradition and also it's, it's conscious revival i think in the 18th and 19th century but we've got lords of misrule before that at the royal court certainly they take the place of the master of revels and as i said the, the position isn't occupied by a social nobody it's normally someone who's a relatively junior official at the court. So you're already pretty posh, we have to say, to be sat at one of the tables where you're going to be nominated to take on that role. To be perfectly honest, we don't have a full understanding of what they did, but sources from either end of the 16th century, that's Polydor, Virgil, and then John Stowe, suggest that they're basically in charge of all forms of merriment at this merriest time of year. Now, it definitely does go down the social scale as well, this kind of misrule. Misrule isn't just something that is reserved for the medieval and early modern 1%. No. So effectively, the Lord of Misrule, it's not quite like the Saturnalian Roman situation where the masters were serving the slaves, but I mean, yeah, I mean, people who are high up are to some extent displaced. You know, there is a certain kind of inversion of of accepted norms of social hierarchies, but, you know, there's only so much can be tolerated. And, you know, there certainly are rules that this has to conform to. Now, students at the inns of court in the early 16th century, one of the inns of court, I think it might be Lincoln's inn, go too far by giving their Lord of Misrule uh, one of the names associated with the Peasants' Revolt in the 14th century. No, 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 you can't have that. 
and within schools as well. We have misrule at medieval schools as well. And again, you know, there's only so far the boys can go. There's something called barring out happens at some medieval and early modern schools. It's where basically the boys barricade themselves into their classroom. And the whole objective is to keep the school, the schoolmasters then try and break in. And uh, if the boys manage to resist, it's all well and good. If the schoolmaster breaks in, it's administration of a sound thrashing. But there are certain ways in which non-elites do get the chance to participate in misrule and inversion. And indeed, traditions of this endure much longer outside elite households than they do within. Now, now I've... um, as well as my interest in all things medieval and monastic, I've also got an interest in post-Reformation English Catholicism. And I can remember reading various diaries and commonplace books of English Catholic gents from the 17th and 18th centuries. And now they keep Christmas on a bigger scale than a lot of their Protestant neighbours. I mean, Christmas on the whole does better than other feasts throughout the Reformation, but it really is an affirmation of these guys' Catholic identities. And certainly they do tolerate some misrule. There is a guy called Richard Chomley, and he's a North Yorkshire Catholic gent. And he recalled, or he always makes a note about his Christmas celebrations. And one year, things get a bit out of hand in his Christmas hall with his tenants getting a bit beard up and resorting to foul language and insults and a bit of pushing and shoving. The, the misrule's going a bit far and he, he intervenes and um, he mentions that in the spirit of the season, he lets it all go on. But by the 18th century, certainly, even in Catholic households, you're finding the traditions of misrule are dying out. But that doesn't mean that they're banished completely from English society at this time, and that they find other ways of sustaining themselves and that they play a very, very important social function, especially for people who are members of the elite. And also they survive as a way, when they do have elite participation, of again reinforcing to some extent the social norms and the social hierarchies. This is a rigidly, rigidly hierarchical society with very little social mobility and you need some safety valves and tolerating a little bit of misbehavior at Christmas time is one way in which this is done. So you get things like, you know, guising and hobby horsing and mumming. Now, guising is recorded from the Middle Ages onwards. Think of it this way. What could possibly go wrong? You have people wearing masks, getting really drunk and having some tolerated bad behaviour. I mean, what could possibly go wrong? And things go very wrong in Scotland at one point in the 16th century. And they think they uh, it ends in some executions from people who are guising going a bit too far. Similarly, mummery, which is putting on masks, but then the traditions find a way of, of, of surviving within the norms of late medieval, early modern, and then even industrial society. With mummer's plays, for instance, of people dressing up in certain costumes, going house to house, a little bit of naughtiness, hobby horsing. Again, the hobby horse becomes something associated with misrule. So that's a fake horse that people ride around, often in quite a burlesque and even obscene way. And then... 
you know, putting on costumes and visiting people's houses, sometimes entering them without explicit consent, which is tolerated to some extent of like, yeah, okay, go on. And we'll reward you whilst you're doing all this kind of thing with some hospitality, with coin, which is very much needed for by people working on the land at this time of year. It's a very, very barren time and there are a few opportunities for casual agricultural labor. So distribution of Christmas charity or return for rewarding people for their misrule within bounds is very important. It remains a way of maintaining traditions of Christmas hospitality. That's giving meat and drink at this time of year. It's a sacred Christmas tradition. But you know, people are doing something in return for it. And some aspects of this misrule ensure in working class areas of the big industrial northern cities well into the 20th century. Yes, but what about now? Because based on what you're describing, it sounds as though where communities were more cohesive and obviously there was less entertainment and television wasn't obviously around at all, it was a bit more of an open society. The situation was more welcoming, shall we say, to this sort of behaviour. We wouldn't allow it now with someone knocking on the door and doing a play in the living room. You know, the, some of the misrule that's described in Bradford in the 19th and early 20th century, people just would just walk into your house on New Year's Day and you were expected if you were like, you know, a member of the, the Bradford bourgeoisie to kind of like, you know, grit your teeth and put up with it. And it's finally put a stop to but there are other ones which are much more accepted. Yeah, you you know you invite people in and let them do the you know it's Thomas Hardy novels are a classic example of it, aren't they? You know, The Return of the Native has the mummers play the hobby horse in it, and then carol singers to an extent as well. You know, people are coming to your door and you're welcoming them in. They're doing something for you, and it is often children or poorer members of your community who are you rewarding for their kind of performance and you're maintaining these tradition Christmas traditions of charity and largesse as well. But misrule and inversion, it does survive and it gets consciously revived by people like me in the 18th and 19th century, you know, antiquarians and scholars think it's all very, very interesting and what wonderful traditions and let's try and bring this back within bounds. And then also you find it in, well, still find it happening in some very posh households where on Christmas Day or a day, actually not Christmas Day necessarily, but a day over the Christmas season, the members of the household, you know, the posh family will wait upon their servants at one meal or give them drinks in the drawing room or something. And even to this day, some regiments in the British Army maintain a tradition at Christmas where officers wait at table upon the enlisted men. And that's a harking back right the way through to inversion and role reversal of the Saturnalia and then maintained through the Middle Ages. And do we find some of this as well in you know office Christmas parties and hospitality where kind of the norms are broken down? <laughs> yes, with people kissing their bosses under the mistletoe after uh, too much to drink. Yeah, no, I mean, how much of that happens today now, you know, you know, we're a bit more conscious about decorum and certain kinds of behaviour. And also aspects of Christmas transgression remain, even in quite faint forms, I think. Think about Christmas jumper day. 
So you wear something a little bit silly. Is it the last Thursday before Christmas or something like that's become that as well? I don't know. And then, you know, you have, you know, I can remember <laughs> my dad, Lord bless his soul, in many respects, quite a straight-laced fellow. At Christmas, especially at the New Year's Eve party, he loved nothing more than dragging up for the costume he would put on and would go to quite some trouble to get the costume as accurate as possible. But there was a burlesque aspect to it kind of thing. You know, I grew up in, some listeners might be at tell, in Northern England. And my word, the last few nights before Christmas, especially the last Friday before Christmas, Good Lord. I mean, that was nothing more than license misrule. You know, the drunken behavior that would happen that night and innkeepers, nightclub owners and the police turning a blind eye to some behavior, which at other times of the year would definitely be thought of transgressive. You know, there were certain boundaries you shouldn't go beyond. People certainly did. But kind of that thing of like, okay, it's Christmas, we'll let you get away with this. Were there any other sort of raucous traditions that extended beyond Christmas into the new year in the past? Well, it's really, I mean, Christmas celebrations and the, you know, the festive calendar. I mean, our festive Christmas calendar, like sort of ends for Christmas on the 26th of December, really does. Then it comes back for the new year and then it's a miserable return to work for a lot of people no matter how much you like your job kind of thing it is you know it's a kind of thing of like you're kind of pleased that it's back actually it's kind of, a lot of people actually are yeah it's back to work but also you've had kind of two weeks off and well oh my word it's january there is precious little to look forward to in january is that well a few extra minutes of light as as the days get longer i can remember once i thought i was a really good way of cheering people up first day back at work on second or third of january and i said well believe it or not there are 15 minutes more daylight today than when we broke <laughs> up on uh, i think we'd broken up on the 22nd of december you know christmas eve was the 24th you know just a and people looked at me from across the workstations with these blank looks as if like, uh, like whatevs kind of thing. And I actually thought, well, this is quite hopeful. The light really is returning. But no, you do have to be an optimist to see that. And it can often be the very worst weather is still to come. And in the festal calendar, there's precious little to look forward to. Well, I do wonder if people in centuries gone by had a better way of dealing with this because... You know, first of all, the crescendo of Christmas isn't the 25th with a kind of bacchanalia of if you want it on New Year's Eve. It kind of, the crescendo of Christmas is the epiphany of the 6th of January. And Twelfth Night celebrations were the real climax of Christmas. And then epiphany in the liturgical calendar has what's called an octave. So the sort of liturgical celebration of it continues right and through until the 13th of January. And also that would be around about the time of the year that everybody really does have to go back to work. You know, people who work on the land, excuse me, would have had quite a long Christmas break from Christmas Eve through to what's called Plough Monday. And that is the Monday following the Feast of the Epiphany. Now you could be very, very unlucky and Plough Monday would be on the 7th of January and you would be back to work with the worst hangover of the year. Or you could have almost another week off 
And actually, even then, if it has a really hard frost, you might not be able to break. It's when plough the ploughing season starts again. Plough Monday, the clues in the name. But there are a whole lot of ceremonies that accompany Plough Monday, including, you guessed it, a bit more communal drinking and celebrations. You know, so come on, we're going to get through this together as a community. Get through it, get drunk. <laughs> and yeah, top up that hangover kind of thing. Um, and also, you, but, you know, ploughs were communally owned. They were stored in the parish church. You know, this is a society where neighbourliness really does matter. And then also there is, you know, because, you know, I mentioned the octave of the epiphany. Well, the Christmas season, and we're going to be talking about this uh, later in the new year, the Christmas season doesn't come to a formal end until the Feast of Candlemas on the 2nd of February. And I have seen evidence in 17th and 18th century diaries and account books of people enjoying Christmas cheer all the way through all the way through January. And unlike today, where our Christmas celebrations really do start probably on the 1st of December, if not before. And as I said, the kind of fizzle out by Christmas Day itself. We're all sick of it by then. Well, back in certain centuries gone by, it wouldn't have started until Christmas Day itself. And gosh, I do sometimes wonder if they had the right idea. Start on the 25th of December and go have something, something, some kind of celebrations to get you through the misery of January. In the past then, effectively, Christmas, well, it lasted for about two weeks, I suppose. There was the full 12 days which were punctuated. They had three peaks to it. It's Christmas Day itself. Then there is New Year's Day, the 1st of January, even though that wasn't the sort of legal start to the new year. The legal start to the new year until 1752 was the Feast of the Annunciation to the Blessed Virgin Mary on the 25th of March. We can deal with that on another occasion. And then the crescendo of Christmas, the Feast of the Epiphany. But all the way through the 12 days, there would be Christmas celebrations. Some elite households, some gentry households, especially ones who were very antiquarian-minded or very, very conscious of their Christian social responsibilities, would keep open house through those 12 days. Sometimes they would restrict that to their tenants and neighbours. Sometimes it would be genuine open house. And in the true spirit of Christmas, they would receive all comers as if, it was, if, this, as if they were Christ himself. The festive tradition of misrule then, it, it's sort of fading out in the Reformation and gradually thereafter, is that right? So the ecclesiastical tradition of misrule goes at the English Reformation. But some of the secular traditions still continue until the early 20th century, potentially? Yeah, I mean, on, on, on a quite a big scale, they endure in the 16th and into the early 17th century. And then other aspects of them. And I think this is an opportunity for us, her English heritage, to celebrate the contribution of non-elites to English customs, English festivals, and English history. History is often told in a very, very top-down way. But here we are, the traditions of misrule are being an inversion, are being consciously and I think deliberately maintained by people who have left, often left not enough historical records and whose role in history isn't celebrated enough. Elites might have been prepared to tolerate it as a kind of way of letting off 
esteem, but it certainly is a way in which members of non-elites through from, you know, medieval and early modern people who work on the labor on the land and who often have very little indeed through to working class, the emergence of working class communities after the Industrial Revolution have left their mark on our calendar festivals. And I'm glad to say we still have some echoes of the importance of inversion and misrule this time of year. And, you know, I'm a self-confessed fan of Christmas and let down what little of my hair is left at that. And I think it's just a great time to enjoy yourself for whatever reasons you have, whether they're driven by faith, whether they're driven by conscious antiquarianism, or for most of us, just the need to have a bit of fun let yourself down, let your hair down, don't let yourself down. I think that happens far <laughs> too much with misrule, doesn't it? Uh, let your hair down. Um, don't take yourself too seriously. I think mean, that's a great Christmas tradition, isn't it? And just let things go a bit and hey, wassail. Yes. And in terms of this sort of tradition, what have we got left of the Lord of Misrule, the Bean King, the Roman masters serving their slaves? At Saturnalia. What what are we left with now in the relatively early 21st century? Well, I wonder, first of all, I wonder if there will be people listening to this podcast who will still be baking a coin or something, a little treat into a cake or pudding at Christmas time. And the person who finds it gets a little bit of status. And that is a distant echo. As I said, there's still these traditions in the British Army of officers waiting on other ranks. And there's still that little bit of transgressive behaviour tolerated with costuming and, well, going a little bit too far or a little bit further than would normally be tolerated on the average night out or celebration around a dinner table. And bosses, I think, dancing at office Christmas parties. That's always fun to watch. <laughs> oh, that's another thing, yeah. We've got to think of all the joys that are yet to come. And actually, if you think about it, you know, people who take, often take themselves very, very seriously putting on a party hat, uh, mm. a, you know, when they've pulled the Christmas cracker, reading out the joke at a dinner table. And I think it's extraordinary that the amount of effort people go to to lay a Christmas table and, you know, it's often the, in some respects, the most formal meal of the year. But then we do these things like pull the crackers and put on silly hats and tell jokes. Mm. There we are. It's, it's the Feast of Fools all over again and the playing of party games. There's another echo of it. I think, you know, a desire to enjoy yourself, to cheer yourself up goes hand in hand with not taking yourself too seriously. And, you know, Christmas is, in, is very much a, a festival for children. Whether or not you have them, children, to some extent we revert to childhood as well. And gosh, isn't it all the better for that? I mean, I'm, I am aware that some people hate Christmas. And as you say, they go back to work in early January thinking, thank the Lord, that's all over. But I, you can probably guess I am not among them. I absolutely love Christmas. I think it's a fascinating subject of scholarship and research. And every year, I embrace the spirit of the season in all of its aspects. And that does often include me making a fool of myself at what is possibly the most foolish time of year. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. 
Next week, we'll be back with our experts to answer all of your questions about Christmas through the ages. You eat meat, which is obviously a more luxury good in larger quantities than you would do in the rest of the year. And it can be any different type of meat for much of the period. It's beef that's more prized. But when you come into the 20th century, the turkey starts to take centre stage. Thanks for listening. See you next time.